0: Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. So this morning's uh, Torah portion is the eighth and ninth of the uh, of the book of Deuteronomy. Seifet Varein. We have only two left until the completion of the entire Torah itself. And of course, tonight is also Slichot, which is the week before Rosh Hashanah. It is uh, the onset of penitential prayers for the season itself. So there's lots of things I could have spoken about this morning. I ran. I, Tick-tock through the list myself. Things such as the um, normalization peace agreement now between Bahrain and Israel. I'm not talking about that. As I mentioned to both uh, Ayal and Herschel when I came into the building, tonight is slichot, as I mentioned to you. And in the Israeli army, after your first week of basic training, everyone's allowed, usually, to go home for the first Shabbat after your first week of basic training irrespective of anything that you've done wrong, they have what they call Shabbat Slichot, the Sabbath of forgiveness. So basically, any little thing you may have done to screw up or whatnot, they don't punish you. You can go home, get your clothes washed, have a nice Shabbat dinner with your mother and father and family, and then you come back on Sunday. I did something so bad I wasn't allowed to leave the base for Shabbat. Shabbat Slichot. I'm not even going to tell you that story another time. And I'm not even going to talk about that. And in in addition to all of that, in the Torah portion for this morning, there is such a thing as rabbinic low-hanging fruit. In other words, ideas, stories, concepts, theologies that are provocative enough that they've been discussed so much That they're easy to talk about. I'm not talking about those either. Questions of free will, human determinism, divine obedience, and human initiative, not talking about any of that. In fact, I want to talk about something really offbeat, and I hope that it'll be of interest to you. I hope you'll follow me. It goes like this In the Talmud, they pose a question. The moral question works like this. You're lost in a desert and you have a canteen of water. This canteen of water is enough only for one person to survive on. You come across another person in the desert and they don't have a canteen of water. What do you do? They ask for water. Do you give them the water or don't you? As philosophical conundrums or moral questions go, it's a great one, because it brings to light the clash of so many important values that Jews have. First and foremost, it is the concern for human life. As the Torah portion for this morning says, u you must choose life. It's the reason fundamentally why you shouldn't do things that are destructive to your body. You shouldn't smoke. You shouldn't do drugs. You shouldn't do things that really put yourself in danger unless you absolutely have to. You shouldn't engage or undergo surgical treatments unless it's absolutely necessary. Because there's always a chance that something will go wrong. That's the way classically rabbinically they've understood this. So what do you do? There's only enough water for one person to survive until they reach to a point where there's more water available. On the other hand, you have a human life that desperately needs water. What do you do? Needless to say, in the rabbinic text, there's lots of disagreements and discussions on this, but ultimately, the answer that we provide by none less authority than Rabbi Akiva himself is that it is absolutely positively forbidden for you to share your water. In other words, self sacrifice is not an ideal. We don't offer ourselves up as victims for something greater than ourselves. The preservation of the self according to this idea is the greatest value or ideal that we operate under. And yet, I'm not so sure that's true. And that's what I want to talk about on this morning. The Torah portion for this morning draws into direct contrast perhaps a different idea about struggle and human sacrifice and something greater than uh, the human itself as the ideal. And I want to read it for you. It goes like this. The very beginning of the Torah portion, Moses once again is giving his final soliloquy to the nation. that are on the cusp of entering into the promised land. He calls out and says, You're all gathered here today. And he goes further on to say, It is not only with you who are here that I fashion this covenant with, speaking for God. It's not only you who are here. The people, the masses that are assembled on the eastern bank of the Jordan River about to enter the Promised Land. But who else? Who else is the covenant made? Apart from those who are here. Even those who are not alive today. Tra- traditionally, rabbinically, this idea has meant a few different things. But first and foremost, it is meant that at that moment, that there was a covenant that was fashioned, not only with those who were physically present at the moment of the covenant at Sinai, but the ancient rabbis imagined that every Jewish soul, every Jewish soul that would ever live, was also there to bear witness to, to claim that they too, had experienced the revelation at Sinai, and they too were part of this covenant. By the way, there's a, an orthodox dating site, website, called Saw You at Sinai. And uh, the idea is, on another rabbinic tangent to this idea, that since every Jewish soul that was ever alive was at Mount Sinai for the, revolu- for, for the revelation, ergo, you're besheared was also at Sinai, hence saw you at Sinai. Um, So in any event, the ancient rabbis imagined that every Jewish soul that ever lived was there at Mount Sinai to be captured into this covenant. But the greater idea operating here is is that it presents to us an idea of working and caring for things that are not presently before you. Of investing and doing and giving for those things that aren't here yet. Because Moses, in his very words, spoken on behalf of God, of course, is that we are observing this covenant and moving into the promised land not only for ourselves. We are taking this step over this river and we will enter into the promised land and we will build homes and we will seed fields, not only for ourselves, but for those who come after us. In other words, what's being presented here in the words of Moses and in the Torah is an idea of self-sacrifice. And it is even drawn into a greater sense of acuity when you realize the person who is saying this. Because where is Moses? Moses, as you well know, is with the people on the east side of the bank of the Jordan, meaning that Moses is not in the promised land. And where is Moses? Moses' final scenes of his life, after he concludes with the the soliloquy that he's offering to the people, he ascends a mountain called In English, Mount Nebo. In Hebrew, it is called Har Mountain Nevo. Har Nevo. And that is where Moses goes. And Moses, who is being refused by God to enter into the promised land, is telling the people that they must be prepared to sacrifice and to give for those who come after them that they will go into the land but they're doing it in order to build and to give for those who follow and Moses himself can't do that he will see but he will not do he will pray but they will not be answered those prayers hu mitchanen in hebrew he will plead with god and god will tell him no you can't go And the very best that Moses can do is to charge that generation. Interestingly enough, the term used in the Torah for that generation that goes into the promised land, into the land of Israel, you know what they call them? It's not an exact term, by the way, but the expression they use of the Jews who leave the desert and cross into the promised land, they said, (laughs) they're pioneers. That those people who are entering in, Moses, the best he can do is pray for them that they will carry a lesson. Not to only live for themselves, but to build for those who come after them. In other words, your present only makes sense. And your past only makes sense. If you're working to a future. You know, the Buddhist notion of living in the moment, pish posh. It's not true. No such thing. There isn't a human alive that lives in the moment, with apologies to any Jew boos or whatnot. (laughs) All the psychology we have in hand basically tells us humans are always, always on a teeter-totter between past and future. The present for us is a springboard where we either live in the past or we venture into the future. And that's what Moses is telling them. Sacrifice. Do and give, build. Not so that you'll live well, but that those who come after you will live well. At the very end of uh, Rukhov Bogershov in Tel Aviv, the block right before you hit Hayarkon, with the beautiful beaches. On the right-hand side, there's a small sign on a pale blue building. It was where one of Israel's most uh, noteworthy, important female poets. Fact of the matter is, in the Israeli postal system, only four poets have uh, been blessed or graced on a postage stamp. This woman is one of them. Her name was Rachel Blustein, uh, Rachel Bluestein. She is simply known in Israel as Rachel, Rachel, or Rachel HaMishoraret, Rachel the Poetess. She is basically, her writings are essential literature in all Israeli schools. She is so much beloved and so well-known in Israel that the Israeli songwriter who wrote and sang Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, Jerusalem of God, Naomi Shemer, you know what her wish was when she died? that she be buried alongside Rachel, the poetess. And in fact, God willing soon, we'll all be back in Israel. You'll take a trip up north, and you'll go stop in one of the most important kibbutzim. In Israel, it's called Deganya. It's right on the Kinneret. And there's a cemetery in Degania, and you'll ask to go see the gravesite of Rachel, of Rachel, the poetess. And right next to her is Naomi Shemer. Rachel's story is heartbreaking. At the age of 17 or 19, she leaves uh, Russia, Kiev. Her grandfather was the chief rabbi of Kiev, and she uh, stops off at, I think it was Italy, and then she makes her way to Israel with her sister. She comes into contact with Aleph Dalit Gordon, um, Gordon who was one of the great early Zionist thinkers. And she basically says, this is where she's going to live. And she's going to invest herself in turning the land into a place where you can live. She moves into into the Ganya, into the kibbutz, and she makes her life. Something happens, she has to leave, but she ends up coming back. And during the trips back and forth, there's a reoccurrence of a childhood disease, this being tuberculosis. And she um, has to leave the kibbutz, she moves to Tel Aviv, where she scrapes a living by being a tutor in Russian and French, and on the side she writes poems. At the age of 40 she dies in a tuberculosis sanatorium outside of Tel Aviv. Rachel comes to Israel in the wave of what is known as the second Aliyah, the mass of Russian Jews who come. It wasn't Israel then. They called it Mandatory Palestine. They dreamt of a state, but there was no state. They dreamt of Jewish autonomy, but there was no Jewish autonomy. They hoped to imagine a society where Hebrew would be spoken, but Hebrew was not the official language. She lands on the shore of Mandatory Palestine in 1909, the very same year, the very same year, that an area outside of Jaffa called Achuzat Abayit, is granted its right to establish itself. That becomes Tel Aviv. She's right on the cusp. And she writes this poem. And I want to read it to you. It says as follows. Kashuv Halev, turn your heart. Ha ozen Kashevet. And give me your ear. Haba. HaYavu, has he come? Is he here? Because from everywhere where I can see, I see the pain of Mount Nebo. This opposite the other. The two banks of the river, on one river, that being the Jordan. Tsur HaGzera, Ruchukim La'ad. The mountain where the decree came from God is far from everything that He wears to be. Peros kapayim, open your hands. Ra'u mineged, and look across from yourself. Shama, from there, in ba, He will not come. Ish unvolo, the man from Mount Nevo, al eretz to the great land. Rachel uses the biblical imagery of Mount Moses on Mount Nouveau, inspiring the people to go into a land that he can't go to, understanding that his sacrifice and his punishment will hopefully inspire them to appreciate what he can't have, but what they can have. It is working to create a future, even though you cannot partake in the future. And Rachel's entire generation was built of people like that, but not hers alone. It is the call of every generation. It is, I would think, one of the most important and enduring of Jewish ideas that we know deep inherently of the call to build something beyond ourselves. It is why buildings like this stand. It is why we miss being in places like this. It is why when you enter into... The entry, at the very front of Beit HaTfutzot, the Israel Diaspora Museum, in the University of Tel Aviv, God willing, we'll be back there soon. There is this inscription. It says as follows. "Liskor bi'avar, remember the past. Lichiot b'hoveh, live in the, fut- in the present. Ulevetach But always have faith for the future. As we approach a new year, Rosh Hashanah, Let us just not build for ourselves. But in realizing that we build for others, we end up giving and granting a great deal to ourselves in return. We should all be blessed for goodness and sweetness and happiness and lots of constructive building for the things that will follow us. Shabbat shalom.